Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. This morning I want to speak to you about Jesus, our Emmanuel. Whenever we come to the Christmas season, there are only a few passages you can deal with. And so you, every year you have to kind of decide which one you're going to deal with because I don't want to repeat too much of what I've done in the past. But I have to admit, my blood got to boiling this last week over something that I heard and I knew immediately what I needed to deal with. I'll tell you what got me all riled up. And it doesn't take too much, it seems like, these days. But this one really got me riled up. And I might also preface my exposition to you this morning by saying that I'm I'm going to get a bit deep here today, all right? So hang on, put on your thinking cap, so to speak. Next week, I promise I will keep a lot more cookies on the bottom shelf, and we're going to look at the narrative, and, and it'll be a little bit different. But I want to warn you that I'm going to take you into some deep theological truths today so that you people are well armed with the truth of the Word of God regarding the deity of Christ and the virgin birth. Here's what got me riled up. Satan is constantly trying to mock and discredit Christ in our culture. And a professor at Minnesota State University has put a PC, politically correct, target on the Lord God, saying that he is a, quote, rapist for creating the virgin birth to bring Christ into the world. He said this, well, first of all, it's a guy by the name, a psychologist by the name of Dr. Eric Sprankle. And he took to Twitter last week to attack God. And he said this, quote, The virgin birth is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. He went on to say there is no definition of consent that would include that scenario. Happy Holidays. And I noticed that some argued in response that Mary consented and went through all of that stuff, which is true. But his response is this, quote, the biblical God regularly punished disobedience. The power difference between deity versus mortal and the potential for violence for saying no negates her yes. To put someone in this position is an ethical abuse or is an unethical abuse of power at best and grossly predatory at worst, end quote. Folks, this is expected among those who are spiritually dead, and this man needs to be pitied. Unless he comes to saving faith in Christ, he will be horrified at what awaits him. But I must say that this is the type of satanic garbage that our young people hear and that many people hear constantly. It's very representative of a godless culture. And ignorance is always the soil in which the seeds of heresy grow best. And like no other time of the year, the Christmas season seems to be the best season for growing the weeds of error and, shall we say, the thistles of blasphemy. This time of year, myths surrounding Jesus Christ compete with the myths about Santa Claus. 
And I fear more people believe in Santa Claus than they do Jesus. So my purpose this morning is to use this occasion, this Christmas season, as an opportunity to uproot some of the weeds of error that might perhaps be growing in your Christological garden. I want to make sure you understand who Christ really is. Moreover, it's my prayer that you grasp some amazing things about Jesus, maybe some things that you weren't aware of before, truths that not only confirmed confirmed the veracity of the inspired record, the veracity of the Word of God, but also exalt the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that as an introduction, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to use this as a launching point, beginning in verse 18. I'd like to read through verse 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when, he had, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, as we examine Matthew's inspired account, I want to remind you of, of four themes that I believe emerge from this text. And this will also require us to examine a few other texts as well. We're going to see our Lord's royal lineage, his physical lineage, his virgin birth, and his eternal sonship. Now, bear in mind that the four Gospels really depict Christ in his humiliation. And the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, depicts him in his glorification. And each of the four Gospel writers have a distinct yet overlapping emphasis in their depiction of Jesus. Matthew depicts him as the sovereign king. Mark depicts him as the suffering servant. Luke depicts him as the son of man, and John depicts him as the son of God. Now, these truths are essential to the gospel message. In fact, the entire superstructure of the Christian faith rests upon the foundation of the incarnate Christ being both fully God and fully man. So here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 that I've just read, we have a detailed announcement of the birth 
of Jesus Christ. That emphasizes that Mary had been betrothed to, to Joseph, yet she was pregnant, not because of any kind of immoral union with Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. We see that Joseph is called, quote, the son of David, and the son's name is to be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But also we see the son was to be, to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a virgin birth, a virgin that would conceive and give birth to a son whose name would be called Emmanuel, that means God with us. This detailed information was extremely important to the Jewish people of the first century because they would have to verify his claim that he was the son of David, the Messiah King. Now, we know that later on in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus will ask the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel in verse 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In other words, what do you think about his genealogical record? What do you think about his ancestry? From what Jewish line has he descended? And they said to him, the son of David, which was the most common messianic title of his day. Now, Jesus knew that they knew because the Jews kept meticulous genealogical records no one could hold any position of authority or responsibility without verification of their genealogy. That's why this is so important. And then Jesus went on in that passage to demonstrate that not only must Christ be the physical descendant of David, but also as the Messiah, he had to be the son of God. Something they did not understand. Jesus was therefore not only underscoring the royal lineage, his royal lineage, but also asserting his deity. Now, obviously, this was very disconcerting to the Jews. This just infuriated the Pharisees. In fact, in verse 46, he goes on to say, or the text goes on to say, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. You don't want to debate with the omniscient Christ, right? That's the point. Now, here's what is fascinating. I want you to notice what precedes Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. And what precedes it? is the genealogy of Christ. And that brings me to the first incomprehensible truth about the incarnation, about the person and work of Christ. Number one, his royal lineage. Look just for a moment. Matthew 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on in great detail. Now, it's amazing what is being said here. Here we learn that Jesus was by birth the one that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. A covenant that was made over 2,000 years before Jesus' birth. And he was also, therefore, the descendant of King David. That's why he's called the son of David. We know that the Messiah King 
would be the one to fulfill the covenant that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, where, the, where he predicted a, a future son who would establish David's kingdom forever. It will not take time to go through the, the, the genealogical record here in detail, but, but know this, it was never disputed by the Jews who kept meticulous records. And what's, what's even more fascinating is that Matthew's genealogy moves forward from Abraham to Joseph, who was Jesus' legal, not physical, but legal father. And this was crucial because the royal line had to be passed down through the legal father. But since Jesus had no human father, his royal lineage had to come from a father the Jews would consider to be his legal father. One that would adopt him and grant to him all the rights and the privileges of a son. And therefore, Joseph was his foster father. And this was never in dispute. In fact, in Luke 4, verse 22, when Jesus was teaching in Nazareth in the synagogue, the people were speaking well of him, the text says, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So none of that was ever in dispute. By the way, there may well be a second reason why Matthew's record underscores the claim of the virgin birth. It may also be an attempt to distinguish this virgin birth from other virgin births that were being promoted, that were floating around in the first century. The ancient Babylonians had their version of a virgin birth. The Sumerians, the, Acad the Akkadians, the, the Buddhists, the Hindus. In fact, even the Greeks believed that Zeus empowered a snake to impregnate the virgin goddess Olympias who bore a son named Alexander the Great. Furthermore, Matthew's account, along with Luke's genealogy a little bit later, also served to refute some of the wild claims that Jesus was the son of a Roman soldier. You know how all these myths get going. No matter what, what the issue is, there's always something on the Internet that's going to say something crazy. Well, that's what was going on back then. And others believe that Joseph merely defiled her out of wedlock. Now, allow me to digress here a moment. Because I know some of you might bring this up, and this is really fascinating. I believe this is a worthwhile discussion. As we look briefly at the royal lineage, there is a fascinating footnote that deserves our attention. Drop down to verse 11. You notice Matthew says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brother at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and so on. Now, what is fascinating, bear with me now, what is fascinating is that in Jeremiah 22 and verse 30, God promised a, a curse on Jeconiah, who was also called Jehoiakim as well as Kaniah. And this guy ruled for three months before being taken into captivity. And there we read of a curse stating that he would never have a son that would sit on the throne of David. Hmm, now we've got a problem here in the Bible. Because obviously this would eliminate Jesus if he had to be from Joseph's bloodline. But God redeemed all of that. Jesus' blood right to the throne of David came through Mary from Nathan. 
Solomon's brother. Not from Solomon, who was in Jeconiah's line, to which Joseph belonged. Now, don't you know the Jews would have spotted this in a heartbeat and used it to their advantage? Because if there had been one blood cell of Joseph's blood in his veins, he could not have been the Messiah. Jesus could not be in the line descending from David through Jeconiah. So what did God do? He bypassed that curse through the virgin birth. Fascinating. Yet at the same time, giving Jesus the royal right to reign as the legal heir of his father. And the blood heir of his mother who descended from David through Nathan. Now notice verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. Catch this. By whom Jesus was born. Jacob was the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary. By whom Jesus was born. Who was called the Messiah. And it's also interesting in the original language. By whom in the Greek is in the feminine. Not the masculine gender. Clearly indicating that Jesus was not born by Joseph. But by Mary. Once again dear folks we. We witness the miracle of the inspiration of Scripture, where the Holy Spirit superintended human authors to precisely record the, the stunning miracle of divine providence. So Matthew establishes these cru crucial truths from the outset of his gospel. But Jesus had to be more than just the legal heir of the throne of David. He had to be more than the royal king. He also had to be fully God. Otherwise, his sacrifice on the cross would not have infinite value necessary to atone for our sin. Moreover, he had to be fully human in order to die in our stead. To take upon himself the penalty of our sin, to die as our substitute. And to be able to conquer death through his resurrection and thus guarantee the resurrection of all who trust in him. So Jesus had to also be the physical descendant of King David. The, the human blood of Abraham and David had to flow through his veins. The very DNA must make up his physical body. And to demonstrate this, the Holy Spirit did two things. First, what we see as he follows the genealogical record with a detailed account of his divine conception in his virgin mother, Mary. And that's what we just read, verses 18 through 25. And then secondly, he carefully details another genealogy through his inspired author, Luke. And we read about that in Luke chapter 3. And we'll look at that just briefly here. So bear in mind, let me summarize this. With Matthew, we see his royal lineage through Joseph's genealogy. But secondly, now we see his physical lineage in Luke 3, 23 through 38. And this is Mary's genealogy. By the way, this is all the stuff that you never read, right? You, do, you don't read this in the Christmas story with your kids. And that's why, and I'm not suggesting that you do this, you know, before you open presents. I get that, all right? But it's important that we understand these things. The Holy Spirit didn't just put it in there for fluff. 
Now, unlike Matthew's genealogy that starts with Abraham and then moves forward in time to Joseph, making it Joseph's genealogy, Luke does something different. Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus and moves backward all the way to Adam, making this Mary's genealogy. And this demonstrates, therefore, Jesus' actual bloodline. Think of it this way. Matthew traces Jesus' Jewish ancestry, beginning with Abraham, whereas Luke stresses his identification with the entirety of the human race. Jesus is a son of Adam. Yet unlike the disobedient Adam, Jesus is the obedient second Adam, while at the same time, he is the true son of God. Now, bear in mind, for Joseph and Mary to make the claim that they had remained sexually pure, even though she's with child, and that the child she bore was the Messiah conceived by the Holy Spirit, all of that would have been claims that the people would find to be utterly ludicrous, right? Imagine Mary trying to explain to her family and friends that an angel said to her in Luke 1.32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Yeah, right. And immediately, the rulers of Israel would run to the genealogical records to refute even the possibility that, that these nobodies, that these teenagers spoke the truth. But instead, what is fascinating is that the genealogical records corroborated their statement. Matthew immediately establishes Jesus' ancestry, connecting it with the Old Testament and with Israel. But then Luke waits until Jesus is well into his ministry. Luke's genealogy didn't come out until Jesus was somewhere around in, in, in his 30s, when his claims to be the Son of God would have just shaken the Jews to the core. Luke also makes it clear in chapter 1 that indeed this was a virgin birth. In Luke 1, verse 34, we read, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Verse 35, the angel, angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. We see then that this, this emphasis, even in the genealogical record, in chapter 3, verse 23, we read, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. As was supposed. It could be translated, uh, so it was thought, or, or, uh, and, and so forth. And, and what a marvelous thing to think, that God did all of this, not only to prove Jesus' royal but, and, and physical lineage, but also to vindicate and, frankly, protect Joseph and Mary from certain scorn that would come upon them. So after considering the marvels of both his royal and physical lineage, we, we, we need to un endeavor to contemplate the third incomprehensible truth about the incarnation of Christ, and that is his virgin birth. 
Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 speaks of this. And by the way, my purpose here is not to carefully exposit every word of this text, but rather to focus just on the aspect of the virgin birth. There we read, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, we must understand that a Hebrew marriage was arranged by contract between the families of the bride and the groom, and this contract was always sealed with a dowry, a mohar, and it was paid by the groom's family to the father of the bride, and this typically was, a lot of it was used to pay for the wedding expenses that, that, that would last like seven days. And the bride's father would also hold a portion of the dowry and trust for his daughter as, as frankly, a life insurance policy in case the the husband were to die or to divorce her or whatever. But the husband would never see any of that mother, or any of that money, I'm sorry, until the, 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 the father-in-law died and then there would be an inheritance. And according to the Jewish wedding customs of that day, they had two basic um, stages, equally sacred. They had, first of all, the, the kiddushin, which was the betrothal or the engagement period. It included a contract. The couple were even considered legally married, even though the actual wedding had not taken place. This betrothal period usually lasted about 12 months. It was time to prove that, that the bride was not pregnant and that the couple were dedicated to sexual purity and so forth. And then there was the hupah, which it actually means in Hebrew, canopy or, or covering. Uh, that was where the couple would stand uh, underneath this canopy during the actual wedding ceremony. And so th this refers to the marriage ceremony itself. And obviously, Mary's pregnancy now re required a great deal of explanation. And we read about this in, in verse 18. The end, again, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, knowing he was not the father, Joseph's reaction was therefore expected, right? In verse 19, we read, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Now, he could have, as many would do in that day, humiliated her publicly. In fact, even stoning was in use at times, according to Deuteronomy 22. But because of his godly compassion and because of his love for Mary, he chose instead to just pursue a private divorce. But notice what happened in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, don't you know that would have been a comfort? Joseph's praying, oh, Father, please help me know what to do. Bam, here comes an angel, tells you. I, I, wish, I wish she still operated, don't you? You know, I hate it when I have options because then you never know which is the right thing to do. So Joseph knew that what Mary had told him about the angelic announcement to her was in fact true. And it's recorded in Luke 1. 
going on then in verse 21, and she will bear a son and and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Verse 22 and following. Now, all this took place that that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. And here he quotes Isaiah 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, and Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Beloved, please understand this. Without a virgin birth, there would have never been an incarnation. Jesus would have been an illegitimate son and his claim to deity would have been a laughable lie and we would have no hope. Sinners would have no hope of a Savior that could atone for our sin. Think about this. The work of redemption required what the theologians would call a theanthropon, a God-man. One who would supernaturally fuse the the human nature and the divine in, in order to form an indissoluble bond. Something that's incomprehensible to us. A man had to suffer punishment, but it was a punishment that only God could endure, thus requiring both a man and God. A man had to be our substitute and bear the punishment for all who would believe in him, yet only God could bear the full wrath of the Father. A perfect man had to die, yet only God is perfect. Human flesh had to go to the grave, yet only God could overcome the grave. God had to make provision to become flesh that he might also make us partakers of the divine nature and grant us his indwelling spirit. And think about it, folks. How could how could Christ be our faithful high priest that is able to sympathize with our infirmities unless he were both God and man? Neither man alone nor God alone could accomplish this thing, these things. So both the human and the divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together. Again, an inscrutable mystery beyond our comprehension. And it's staggering to think of the two natures of Christ. I mean, let, let, let me make this even more practical here. So you get the picture of who Jesus is. Even as a fetus... Growing in his mother's womb, he was, quote, upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Think about it. Jesus required milk from his mother's breast, yet, quote, in him all things hold together. Colossians 1 verse 17. Can you imagine that? You're nursing the one who is holding all things together. In his humanness, we know that he would, he, he, he at times became hungry and thirsty, weak and tired. And yet in his divinity, he was able to multiply, multiply the bread and the fish and turn water into wine. While on the boat with his disciples, he slept in absolute exhaustion. Remember that? Yet at the same time, He was the omnipotent Lord of the universe that could arise from his slumber and calm the sea and the storm with a word. 
And beloved, we must understand that his human nature has now ascended into heaven. Yet, because of his divine nature, he continues to be omnipresent. Has he not promised that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age? In his humanness, according to Hebrews 4 and verse 15, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. I mean, he literally could not sin. In fact, in his divinity, he was not even tempted because God cannot be tempted with evil, right? James 1.13. Jesus had no sin nature. Therefore, he could have never sinned. Hebrews 7.26, he was, quote, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. 1 Peter 1.19, he was, quote, a lamb, unblemished and spotless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, dear Christian, don't miss this. Yes, the incarnation required a virgin birth in order to fuse the human and the divine. And this is what Isaiah prophesied. Moses also prophesied it in Genesis 3.15. Remember that great text? After cursing the physical serpent, he, he turned to, to, to Satan and the, the, the spiritual serpent that had seduced Adam and Eve in the garden. And there he promised that there would be a perpetual battle that would exist from that day forward. He said, your seed, referring to Satan's offspring, unbelievers, and her seed, referring to her descendant, Christ, and all who belong to him, they're going to be in a battle here. In fact, the term seed can also be understood in, in a collective sense, referring to all who will make up the progeny of Satan as well as Eve. But it can also be understood as just a singular, final, glorious product of a woman. One born without the seed of a male, but of the woman and the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul speaks of this in Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, comma, born of a woman. Absolutely astounding. No mention of a man, once again, confirming Jesus' virgin birth as, and his humanity. Well, this leads us to the fourth and final incomprehensible truth concerning the incarnation of our beloved Savior. And that is his eternal sonship. Notice in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, again, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. We also read in Luke 1 that the angels reveal more about the son when, when he appeared to Mary, or the angel did when he appeared to Mary. There we read in Luke 1.32, he will be called the son of the Most High. You see, not only was Jesus Christ the Messiah, King of, of Israel, God, very God, fully man, born of a virgin, but he was also the eternal son of God, before he was ever conceived and born. I've, I've been confused about this in the past. I don't think I am anymore. My position is, and I believe this is biblical, he did not become the Son of God at his incarnation. He was eternally the Son of God. 
Scripture teaches that a father-son relationship has always existed in eternity past. A relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Romans 1, 3. God promised His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, some will argue that Jesus assumed the role of the Son at His incarnation. A subordinate role that He did not have prior to the incarnation. They will use Hebrews 1 and verse 5, which, by the way, quotes Psalm 2, 7 as a proof text. There we read, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it goes on to say, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And since the term begotten normally speaks of, of, of a person's origin, and since sons are typically subordinate to their fathers, this would seem to support that view. And indeed, Christ, though he was equal to God, voluntarily submitted to the Father's will. He willingly set aside his divine attributes, his divine prerogatives in his incarnation. Philippians 2 speaks of this. Uh, John five nineteen speaks of this. But we must also understand the context of Psalm 2 that's quoted in Hebrews 1. When it says, this day I have begotten thee, we must understand this figuratively, not literally. It's speaking of the eternal decree of God, not a specific event and point of time. Because after all, Jesus had no beginning. It speaks of the establishment from all eternity of the, the filial relationship between the first and the second person of the Trinity. Filial means the, that which is, is proper according to, to, to sonship, in the context of a generation and so forth. So it, the, the text speaks of, of the Father generating the, the personal subsistence of the Son and thereby communicating or transmitting to the Son the divine essence of God that was visibly manifested in the Incarnation. In fact, in John five twenty six, we read that the Father has granted the Son to have life in Himself, which included even the power of resurrection, as it went on to say in verse 20. So once again, since the term begotten can often mean origin or speak of one's offspring, it's natural to assume that the begetting of a son is speaking of, of his conception, uh, a point in time when a child begins to exist. And many apply this understanding to the, their conception of Christ. But I think that that's fraught with a lot of problems. Let me hit it on just a couple more. First of all, it was the Holy Spirit, not the Father, who conceived the incarnate Christ, right? This also eliminates the idea of, of, the, of the Father begetting or originating the Son, that He wasn't in existence until the Father caused that to happen, as some would say based on Psalm 2 that's quoted in Hebrews 1 and verse 5 and so forth. So it's obvious that this must refer to something more than mere conception. But secondly, and I made mention of this a moment ago, in John 1, verses 1 through 3, John makes it abundantly clear, clear that Christ is not a created being. There we read of that, that Christ is a self-existent, pre-existent being. He is the uncreated creator of the universe. There we read... He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus had no beginning. 
So what does begetting refer to? If it's not referring to origin, there's other passages that use the same phrase, the only begotten of the Father. John 1, 14, verse 18 as well. John 3, 16, John uh, 3, 18, Hebrews 11, verse 17, and so forth. Folks, the phrase or the term only begotten, monogenes in the original language, can mean something far more than just the origin of one's offspring. It literally means one of a kind. One of a kind. We see this in the created order. You know, every creature begets its own unique offspring. Genesis 1 speaks about this. They're, they're, they're created after his own kind, right? Every offspring, therefore, bears the exact likeness of the parent. And when applied to Christ... This would emphasize his utter uniqueness, his utter likeness to his father. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So when the Holy Spirit uses the term begotten, he's not speaking of origin here. He's speaking of the absolute uniqueness and oneness of essence between the father and the son all of which is consistent with the essential oneness that is found in the triune Godhead. Moreover, Scripture's primary use of, of the title, quote, Son of God, reveals that it, it's speaking of his essential deity and his absolute equality with God, not his voluntary subordination or submission to the Father. It's not what it's ever referring to. And this was precisely the issue in John 5 that infuriated the Jewish people when they charged Jesus with blasphemy. Remember in verse 18, they did this, quote, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They were just apoplectic with rage when they heard this. So again, the title Son of God speaks of his deity and equality with God, not his submission to the Father. I like the way John MacArthur put it, quote, Human father-son relationships are merely earthly pictures of an infinitely greater heavenly reality. The one true archetypical father-son relationship exists eternally within the Trinity. All others are merely earthly replicas, imperfect because they are bound up in our finiteness, yet illustrating a vital, eternal reality. So, folks, when we consider Christ as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, as the text reads, don't be confused by thinking of this in terms of procreation. That's not what it's speaking of. But rather, these are, are concepts that convey the transcendent truths pertaining to the essential oneness shared by the members of the triune Godhead and the, the utter uniqueness of Christ as the perfect likeness and essence of the Father as well as the Spirit. What an unfathomable concept, right? I mean, folks, think about it. In his incarnation, he remained the eternal son of God. He remained fully divine, yet he became what he previously had not been, namely fully human. Someone put it this way, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. 
Folks, we must also understand that Jesus did not give up his human nature after his death and resurrection. He did not temporarily become a man, but rather his divine nature was permanently joined to his human nature. We know that he appeared, for example, to his disciples after his resurrection, and they saw the scars of nails, the, the, the scars of the nail prints in his hands. I mean, he had flesh and bones. He ate food. We know also that he was taken up into heaven while talking with his disciples. You remember what the angel promised? In Acts 1.11, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. We know that Stephen gazed into heaven as he was being stoned and he saw Jesus, Acts 7, verse 56, quote, the son of man standing at the right hand of God. We can also go to John's vision in the Revelation, the book of Revelation. There he sees Jesus in his resplendent glory and he describes him as, quote, one like a son of man, Revelation 1 and verse 13. Wayne Grudem puts it this way, quote, He lives forever, not just as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus, the man who was born of Mary, and as Christ, the Messiah and Savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person, forever. Folks, when we see our blessed Redeemer someday, he will appear to us as a human being in a glorified state. We don't know the fullness of all that, of what all that means, but it's an amazing truth. Well, dear Christian, I hope you've been able to kind of grasp at least some of this. You may want to listen to this again, but this certainly refutes so much of the the, the insanity that you hear at the Christmas season. And I just challenge you to meditate upon these, these incomprehensible truths so that our, heart will, our hearts will resonate with what we sang early, that great Charles Wesley hymn. I love it. It, it really captures the, the essence of the angelic praise, doesn't it? Remember, the, 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 the phrase that we sang earlier is this, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with me to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Folks, during this Christmas season, won't you sing that with your family? Won't you explain this to your kids? Meditate upon it? This is so much more important than opening up the next version of whatever toy or whatever it is. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but not important as this. Meditate upon these truths. Allow them to saturate your mind and animate your heart to, to, to further praise of the living Christ who has died in our stead, the one who is coming again, but he's not coming again in obscurity. No, 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 no. The next time he comes, it will be an unmistakable glory. He's not coming again in humility. 
He's not going to come again as a suffering savior, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is coming again as king of kings and Lord of lords. Folks, this is Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reality of your word that and the power of it that just brings such clarity. And Lord, even though we can't even begin to comprehend the fullness of the incarnation of the virgin birth or any of the great doctrines of your word, we nevertheless believe them because you have given us the gift of faith. And through the eyes of faith, we see clearly as much as you will allow us to see. And thank you that someday we will see all of your glory and how we long for that time. We long for that day. So, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until you do, may we be faithful to proclaim the truth of Emmanuel, our Emmanuel, that others might also hear and believe by the power of your Spirit. And certainly, if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it means to be in relationship with the living Christ, having cried out for undeserved mercy for the ways that they have sinned against you, I pray that today you will expose them to the horror of their sin, the wrath that awaits them, lest they bow before the cross and plead for the mercy that you so readily give to all who truly repent and place their faith in the living Christ. We thank you. We give you praise. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.